Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Well, more cases of COVID-19 have been reported in Ontario, bringing the total now to 32. Has the world overreacted or underreacted to the outbreak? Oil prices take the biggest plunge in decades. What does this mean for the average Canadian? It's pretty shocking. And Stephen Del Duca has been chosen as the new Ontario Liberal leader. What does he have to do to improve the image of the party and his own image for that matter? The Bill Kelly Podcast starts now. Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. Here in Ontario, four new cases of COVID-19 have uh, been identified, which uh, brings the total up to 32. Joining us to talk about this is Dr. Todd Coleman, Ph.D. Assistant Professor in the Department of Health Sciences with Wilfrid Laurier University. Sorry, doctor, thank you so much for the time. Glad you could join us today. Thanks for having me. Uh, we are told by the officials, doctor, that uh, the, the, the threat in, in Canada especially is still regarded as low here. But when we keep hearing about these number of, of, of cases that are coming up, I know on a, on a percentage and ratio basis, that it, it's not as if you know, everybody here is in danger. But the potential is there. Should we be concerned? Uh, there's always a level of concern that can be, uh, that everyone should have. But I think the, there's a difference between concern and outright panic, right? Um, and it, you can still protect yourself in a few different ways by uh, just being vigilant about uh, uh, washing your hands after you've been out, uh, those kinds of things. But yeah, the risk still remains really low for most Canadians. Uh, most of the cases are from travel-related um, uh, exposure. But they keep talking about the possibility of pandemics, and those are the words that get thrown around, probably in the wrong context, I, I would think. But at the same time, you know, we hear about soccer stadiums being shut out. You know, we, the, the Women's World Hockey Championships have been cancelled. Uh, other events have been cancelled. There was some discussion last week about even the winter or the Summer Olympics uh, this uh, fall that are going to be cancelled this August. They're going to be cancelled. Uh, so it's it's obviously having a greater impact in other parts of the world. Is there a concern here, or is there a firewall around the North American border that it's not going to be as severe here as it might be in other areas? Uh, I think I think uh, yeah, it's it's much more complicated. Uh, I think we can expect more cases here. Um, whether or not we should be shutting down uh, mass events is something that uh, uh, should be decided once we see. Uh, if we see more local transmission happening. However, again, yeah, most of the cases are happening in those who are traveling or exposed in other areas. And they're quickly being uh, quarantined and self-isolated. Uh, our public health officials here are very, very quick at uh, detecting these cases and, and ensuring all the measures are being taken to protect the rest of the public. Is there a a possibility here, though, uh, and, and maybe should get into definitions here. You're right. I mean, when they say human exposure, that, in other words, means one human gave it to another, as opposed to somebody who may have picked it up in Las Vegas or in, in, in Asia or something like this. Do we get more concerned if all of a sudden we start finding that, uh, that uh, I think there are one or two cases where uh, it's been identified as, as positive, but at the same time they say, but nobody involved here, nobody in their immediate area uh, did any traveling. So uh, is is it out there? How does it how how does it make its way to southern Ontario if, in fact, nobody brought it in? Or somebody well, must have. Yeah, that's the problem with uh, uh, some of these. Uh, the, the, the nature of COVID-19 is that it's such a new condition. Uh, and there is some uh, research that does suggest that there are people who are uh, have mild manifestations of it. 
uh, and could potentially be passing it on without even knowing, thinking that they just have uh, a fairly uh, uh, severe cold uh, or uh, flu. Um, so that's, I don't think that we need to be worried right up front. Uh, we seem to be seeing all of the cases being isolated. Uh, and we have a very, very rigorous multi-level uh, government response to dealing with this. Let me ask you about that, Doctor. How would you rate the, the government's response, both federally and provincially, as, as they've seen this thing unwind? Uh, I, I, I'm hearing mixed feelings about this, and of course there's a lot of criticism south of the border about this, but let's just focus on, on the Canadian reaction to it. Uh, I think the Canadian reaction is uh, actually, or the Canadian uh, response is actually quite, quite good. Uh, keep in mind, historically, we do have some uh, uh, experience with this, with the SARS epidemic, mm-hmm. which meant that in 2003, uh, we had uh, extreme coordinated response and outcomes out of that. Like agencies like Public Health Agency of Canada and Public Health Ontario, these really large uh, uh, bodies uh, were created directly out of a response from the SARS outbreak. And the communication and testing being done, uh, coordinated from provincial, local, provincial, and national level, are quite, quite uh, impressive compared to uh, our neighbor down to the south. Well, and that criticism seems to be rampant down there, that they don't have a plan, and they're kind of doing this by the seat of their pants. But uh, you're right, Doctor. In contrast, as as I see, well, even the daily updates that we're getting now from, from uh, Ottawa and even from uh, from Toronto these days, uh, it seems as if as soon as they saw this, they they said, "Okay, we've already got the plan. Let's let's put it in place right now." In other words, there seems to be a strategy here. Yeah, there's a very coordinated strategy, and it's been in place for years. The emergency plans uh, for potential outbreaks, potential epidemics, are really, really, really well coordinated here in Canada, and it's quite impressive to see uh, uh, the response at multiple levels of government. Is this going to be the new normal, Doctor? Uh, you know, we keep hearing words like pandemic and uh, and viruses that we seem to mutate. And uh, as you mentioned, there was SARS. There was some concern a year or two ago about the Ebola crisis. I guess a little more than a year or two ago, but it just seems as if there's a, there's a consistent pattern that's that's developing here. Uh, in terms of uh, new normal, I, I don't think so. Uh, but at the same time. This is so new that we don't really know what's going on. I think what people need to realize um, is when they're reading news articles and when they're looking at research, even the numbers coming out of governments and things like that, uh, we need to be very critical of what we're seeing. Um, A lot of these, uh, uh, the information we're being presented are known cases. So people who've been tested, who've been confirmed positive for COVID-19. And what we need to be really vigilant about is to look at the numbers and say, okay, well, we know that there's actually uh, almost four-fifths of cases, 80%, tend to be relatively mild. Uh, and of these cases, uh, uh, we need to be uh, aware that there's probably more of the mild cases out there than the severe because they're not accessing health services. So the numbers we get presented with are sort of distortions of what we're what is actually the real case. So case fatality rates are, are likely artificially higher. Uh, we see that in comparison with the case fatality in Korea, which is at about 0.9% compared to in China, which is 3.4%. 
which means uh, uh, we, we don't really have the full picture yet of what's going on. So really take this with uh, a, a grain of salt uh, and look at it critically before you make any rash decisions about what to do. And listen to the medical experts. That's exactly right. Yeah. You, I, it, it has not been lost on me nor a lot of other people that when we get our updates here from uh, from uh, federal authorities or provincial authorities, it's the, it's the medical experts, not the politicians that are talking. And that's, uh, I think, something we should take some solace in. Yes, exactly. And it, it, like we've been saying all along, Canada is uh, at the forefront with the information. We know who the cases are, and we have a lot of detailed information about what, what's going on and how to protect ourselves. Dr. Todd Coleman. Doctor, thanks as always. Great to have you on the program today to uh, give us some perspective on this. Great. Thank you very much. Okay, we'll talk again soon, I'm sure. So what about the fact that so many people seem to be, and well, in some people's minds, overreacting to this? I'm going to bring Carrie Bowman into the conversation, assistant professor in the Department of Family and Community Medicine in the Faculty of Medicine at the uh, University of Toronto. Uh, professor, thank you for the time. I'm glad you could be with us today. Yes, happy to do so. Uh, I'm, I'm seeing stories on the weekend of people that are having hospital gowns on, and well, we already know about the run that are on facial surgical masks these days. And uh, there's Purell is, is is about as precious as gold, I guess, to some people right now. <laughs> are, 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 are we as a as a population overreacting to this? Well, you know, it depends what exactly we're doing. So, you know, in terms of face masks and things like that, we've been told so, so very many times that uh, it's really, really not necessary at this point. You know, what I would say to that, and not everyone agrees with me on that, is if a person feels people have different reactions to how they fear, feel about things and how they fear things. And if a person somehow feels safer and more secure in a mask, you know, I, I know it may not be medically indicated, but I it's kind of up to them. Um, but, you know, in, infection is really not the thing that we need to be considering. What we need to be considering is the possibility, you know, if there is community outbreak, how are we going to organize our lives? Um, and I don't really mean in terms of um, in terms of the risk. I mean in terms of if, if we do have to limit our social gatherings, you know, do we have elderly people living with us or around us or near us? Because those are the people we really, really want to protect but, you know, as the previous physician just said, um, you know, risks from what we know are very, very low. But these outbreaks are not just biological events. As we can see, they're social, they're political, they're economic. And that's where I think we need to focus a lot of our planning. Well, we've certainly seen that uh, with the reaction from the White House, uh, with the things that are going on in the States right now. It seems yeah. as if the president seems much more obsessed with the impact this is going to have on the stock market than he does about public health. Uh, yeah. that, that's a different perspective altogether. But no, notwithstanding, as outrageous as that might be, it is having an impact on the economy. Yeah, it definitely is. And, you know, we can say, well, that doesn't mean much, but, you know, it depends. You know, the more vulnerable people uh, will be hit hardest by an economic uh, hit. You know, those of us with savings and owning our own homes and things like that, that's going to be a different story. So, again, you know, I think we have to consider who's most vulnerable within our society at a time like this. Because I think the sad reality is many of us are going to take an economic hit. Whether it's minor or not, it remains to be seen, but... It, you just, you know, follow the news. You can see how many things are canceling, how much behavior is changing. So there will, economy is part of this equation at this point. Well, and the bottom line for some people, I know we covered the story last week about the, the new James Bond movie has been postponed now till November uh, because of the, uh, of the outbreaks of, of COVID-19. I was talking to a friend of mine over the weekend, and they said, well, that's, that's very gracious of the, of the studio because I want to make sure nobody gets infected. And I said, that may well be a factor, but uh, the other factor is they don't want to play to half-empty theaters, too. You know, they, they made this movie to make money, and if nobody goes, they don't make any money. 
No, that's exactly it. That's exactly it. And, you know, people need to make good economic decisions. But I, I think in the weeks ahead, because let's be honest, this has not peaked. This is not over. We're going to be dealing with this for a while. And I don't know what time period that is. But, you know, weeks to months, I think, is reasonable. So if we're going to make economic decisions, let's just make sure that we're, you know, protecting vulnerable people and we're making the best decisions we possibly can. Because, you know, self-isolation, self-quarantine, that's, if that should come for some of us, um, you know, the reality is for some people, they're going to lose a lot of money. Many professional people, not all, could easily work from home and it won't, it won't have a huge effect. So we will see. But again, risks are low. And as the previous physician said, we still don't understand what the baseline is in terms of these cases because we don't know how many people are not getting sick that are exposed or getting sick very mildly. So again, it doesn't look like we have much physical risk, but to think ahead into the weeks ahead as to how prepared are we if there is shutdown, visiting elderly people, those are the types of things we want to be thinking about. The fact that there aren't a whole lot of test kits out there, and, and that's, again, something that's making more news down south than it is here. Yeah. Should that be a concern to us? Or, or, or really, instead of having everybody tested, uh, do we only focus on those that are presenting with certain symptoms? Yeah, it would be good, and I think they're closing that gap very quickly. And as you've indicated, I mean, compared to parts of the United States, we are light years ahead on this one, um, and we're well, well, well prepared. But, I, you know, I think it's it's important we, we focus on other things. It's going to be hard to test absolutely everybody, and um, it does not look like, as we've indicated, that there's community outbreak at all in Ontario at this point. Uh you just destroyed another myth that was floating around, in, especially on social media, that, hey, as soon as the weather turns and we get into the nice spring weather, this thing is going to go away. Uh, that's, you don't necessarily agree with that assessment. No, I know. And, you know, I've gone back. I've heard so many different opinions, and it's beyond my qualifications. But what I've understood is this virus may really, really retreat in warmer weather. Um, and because it parallels flu season and contain dry environments, I don't know if we have the definitive answer on that. But, boy, I hope it's true. Because look at today. We're going to, what is it, 15 degrees? Hallelujah. Yeah. I mean, this kind of weather. Also, psychologically, this is going to be good for all of us that spring is here. And it will help us in this, you know, this challenging time to get through this. Um, it will definitely help on a lot of levels. Whether it's a virus breaker or not, I'm not qualified to say. Well, it doesn't matter. No, even if you're not qualified, though, Professor, yeah. apparently you can have a hunch now. And that's just as good. Yeah. So. Uh, don't 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 limit yourself i guess <laughs> I yeah and i think the psychological benefits will be good but you know i also think we have to think of weeks and even months ahead you know what here's the reality that spring and summer of 2020 may not be a big travel time for any of us right so we need to rethink uh you know the weather's going to be beautiful southern ontario is beautiful in the summer um we may have to just accept that <laughs> I'm okay. We'll see. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Professor, thanks as always. I really appreciate the time today. You're very welcome. Best wishes. Professor Kerry Bowman, of course, from University of Toronto. So there it is. And, and again, as, as Professor said and as Dr. Coleman said, uh, we've got to be vigilant, but we also have to be practical and pragmatic about this, too. And we just noticed a number of places uh, that we went to over the little while. Notice in washrooms now they've got signs about how to wash hands which you didn't see very often before, but, you know, we should be doing that all the time anyway. Uh, and they, the, the one they've got heavier at the radio station here, too, it's, it's in the men's washroom. It's an 11-step process in how to wash your hands. I mean, you know, do this, do this, put the soap on, do this, get between the fingers, step one, step all the way down to 11. 
And I felt like adding a step 12 and saying, after you do all that, uh, put your hand on the germ-covered door handle and leave the room. So, But they didn't include that. So, you know, again, we got to be pragmatic. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Well, oil prices have plunged dramatically, uh, down more than 30%. It's the, the largest drop since the beginning of the Gulf War back in 1991. Uh, and you bet it's having an impact. Joining us to talk about this is Marvin Ryder, business professor at the DeGroote School of Business at McMaster University. Good morning. Thanks for coming in today. Glad to be here, Bill. You've preached to us for years now that markets don't like volatility. Well, Marvin, we've got us some volatility here. <laughs> well, markets first don't like uncertainty. we got that, too. We have that, too. <laughs> we got lots of that. So let me see if I can set this up for you. I'll just take a moment to do. Uh, last recession in the world was in 2007-8, and typically they happen every 10 years. So starting in 2017-18, the market has been looking for signs, looking for signs. <clears throat> you know, is, is this the big one? Is this the next recession? Is this the next one? And so far, we had avoided it. Now, coronavirus comes in in January, and initially, the market kind of turned a blind eye towards it. But when we saw how big it got in China and shutting down the second largest economy in the world, that was the only way we could deal with coronavirus close the movie theaters, close the malls, close businesses, basically quarantine the whole country. Wow. You know, the market said, wow, this is, you know, second largest economy. This isn't good. But if this is what's necessary, we'll get past it. Well, of course, coronavirus leaked out. It leaked out to three places, Korea, Italy, and Iran. Today, coronavirus is almost, is almost old news in China. The number of new cases today in China, 33 33, had 80,000 in total, 33, mm -hmm. that's hardly anything. But the number of new cases in Italy, 1,500, 1,500. <clears throat> so that's part of the fear that's gripping the market. Separate from that was all the volatility you saw in the last yeah, that weeks. Was, yeah, that was last week's news. That volatility. was last week's news. And then, and then we had a big thing happen on Friday, and that's what's causing the biggest problem today. Thursday evening, the member nations of OPEC, the oil-producing exporting countries, this is that cartel, met in Vienna. And what they were meeting to do was they didn't like what was happening with oil prices. OPEC has set as a target they'd like to see oil at $60 a barrel. And when they were supposed to meet last Thursday night, it was around $47 a barrel. And they said, gosh, this isn't good. So how can, we, how can we jack up the price? Oh, I've got an idea. Let's cut supply. Of course, that old rule of supply and demand. If mm -hmm. we cut supply, that'll go up. And so they had put on the table the idea of cutting their oil production by 1.5 million barrels, 1,500,000 barrels a day. But for it to work, you had to get agreement not only between that cartel, those oil-producing countries, but a few of the friends of OPEC, one of those friends being Russia. Friday morning, they had their meeting. Russia said, no, no, thank you. Not interested in cutting my production. I want to pump just as much as I can out of the ground. And the meeting ended, no deal. And when they came out of the meeting, suddenly oil fell by $5 a barrel down to around 42 now, why should you and I care about that? Because look at the pumps. My gosh, look how cheap gas is at the pumps. And that's even after you add a carbon tax yeah, to it. Yeah. You know, it's supposed to break us all. Well, there's two reasons we should care. In Toronto, fully one half of the stocks on the Toronto Stock Exchange, in one way or another, are tied to oil. So as oil tanks, so does the Toronto Stock Exchange. And then I think the other reason we should care is our brothers and sisters in places like Saskatchewan and Alberta. Those economies are, are in tough shape. And it's just gotten a lot tougher when oil is down at that point. 
you know, for, for Alberta oil sands to work for them, it has to be around $60 a barrel at 42 or even now, I, I, I think now today. It's, it's it, below. It, I'm it's, just looking at the opening numbers here because they opened just a couple of minutes ago. Uh, what is it now? Oil plummets below $35 U.S. now. Oh, my God. So, yes, this is this is the problem for Alberta. The Dow is down 7%. TSX is down 7% at opening. Yeah, and when you say 7%, just for the people listening, that's almost 2,000 points. Yeah. So, I mean, this is these are big numbers today, and it's all due to the oil shock. Uh, whether that's going to change Russia's tune, I don't know, but that's that's the problem. We've got a real glut of oil, and all those stocks on both exchanges, they're really down. I, I don't want to get too deeply into the pol- political weeds on this, but uh, the, there's method to, to Putin's madness on here. I mean, he just wasn't doing this because he said, hey, I can make some money off this. Uh, in a lot of people's minds, this is revenge for the sanctions that uh, that NATO and others have put on him in the last little while. And he looked at this as a way to say, you know what, I can really screw these guys around here. And he's doing it. Yes. Uh, I mean, we know we know there are other forces at play than armed forces. There are things you can do economically that wound people back and forth. And oil is certainly one of those today. I guess I am a little surprised because, uh, you know, the old story has been that uh, Donald Trump is Putin's friend. And these kind of numbers really, really, really hurt the Donald Trump reelection campaign. Donald Trump has always measured economic success by how well the stock markets are doing yeah. and, and to have them plunge the way they have over the last couple of weeks. But remember, right at the start, this is a group of people, these investors on the stock market, who are worried anyway. So then when you, when you do any kind of perturbation in the marketplace, they're going to react even more strongly. Uh, S&P is down 7%. Uh, now, uh, U.S. stock trading is now halted for 15 minutes. I guess everybody wants to take a deep breath here. <laughs> I had hoped the weekend was going to give them the deep breath, Bill, but yes, this is something you do when you start going this far. Here's the other thing that happens, Bill. Today, so much of the stock market is controlled by something called algorithms, algorithms, mathematical concepts that tell you when to buy or sell stocks. The problems are that the computers that run that artificial intelligence don't really have a sense of other things going on. They just react to numbers Mm -hmm. on a piece of paper. And I think this is where you need humanity to step in and say, wait a minute, wait a minute here. There's no need for all of this to be happening. And hopefully we'll see a rally before the day is out. Uh, This is chicken little syndrome right now. Yes. And, uh, and it, I mean, for it to open this way uh, means that uh, as panicked as they were Friday, they're even more panicked now. Even more panicked now because of this oil at 30, I think she said $35 below, a barrel. Below 35 I mean, yeah. we, we haven't seen those numbers. Uh, you'd have to go back to 2014, 15 to see those things. And so building pipelines or, or fracking for oil. Uh, and now for those people who are environmentalists, they, they're probably smiling gleefully behind all of this. Say, see, I told you. But it, it really is a symptom of the turbulence out there in the marketplace today. Every, nobody knows where the safe harbor is. I don't know where gold is at this moment, but normally we think gold shoots up during these difficult economic times. But last week, gold went down $70 an ounce. There just doesn't seem to be any safe harbors at this moment. Uh, are, are you concerned about what happened to the market today in the first 10 minutes? <laughs> Well, if you had this, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not suggesting it's 1929 <laughs> no, all over again. No, but I hear you. Well, had this happened over the course of a day, I probably would be less concerned. If it's happened in 10 minutes, well, what did the other seven hours bring yeah. for us at this point? It, it just is a case of of absolute fear and panic. And under those circumstances, we could have a crash. We could absolutely this could go down 4,000 points by the end of the day, and we could be bringing on another great recession. 
I'm just not sure it's needed. I wish saying heads would would uh, come to date on this. Take coronavirus, which is the starting point behind all this. Yes, it's a, it's a terrible thing. Yes, I understand it's a terrible thing. But, but you know, more people died with flu last year in North America than are dying with coronavirus. We've got to keep it in some perspective, I think. Well, I think that's uh, that horse is out of the barn now with mm-hmm. what's gone on. I mean, you've got... Well, as you mentioned, a number of places. Even California has declared a state of emergency now. They don't want crowds gathering. Uh, they've done that in Italy already. Mm-hmm. Uh, the numbers there are staggering, of course. You know, they're, they're playing, Juventus is playing soccer games now in front of empty stadia because there's nothing, you know, they don't want any crowds. They canceled the Women's World Hockey Championships, yes. which was supposed to take place in a week or so, and on and on Here it goes. Here in Canada. Here yeah. in Canada. So, so it just seems, Marvin, as opposed to the, as you said, it, cooler heads prevailing, uh, we're, we're going the other way. Well, I, I can tell you at the university there is talk about you know, should we be canceling classes or should we all be moving to online learning so that no one actually has to leave the privacy of their bedroom to come to classes. Nothing like that's happening at this moment, but this is the kind of fear and panic which is driving things. Uh, I, normally what happens is you get a weekend and people can get away from the numbers. They can get away and they can contextualize. That's why I was hoping for a better start today, but clearly the crash of oil is sending repercussions through the market. All right. Well, they called it uh, down the New York Stock Exchange. As we just mentioned, called a 15-minute timeout, uh, which is what basketball coaches do when the other team scores like 12 points in a row against them. They say, whoa, 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 we'll get away. But Marvin, when they get back in there, it's the same guys, the same traders. It, it can be. It can be. It, you know, They I, didn't clear the room. <laughs> no. Well, I, but I will say I have noticed certainly in the last five years this thing about computers and algorithms. You can have a morning where you can lose 800 points, and then in the afternoon you come back and you gain 600 because the humans take over from the computers. And it may very well be. These algorithms work nicely when the day is fairly normal. But when you have tremendous volatility in a day, the algorithms have never been designed to take that into consideration. What do they have to see or know to to create a, (coughs) a sense of stability? Well, I think this is the time that you need your political leaders to come out and say things. Well, that's bad news. Uh, Well, (laughs) but you need them to say something. Or when I say political leaders, that would even include people like the governor of the Bank of Canada, the governor of, or excuse me, the Federal Reserve Board chairman. I I think we need to hear these people who are in leadership of the economy, whether they are political or in the case of the central banks, to come out and say things. Now, if it was any other time, Bill, I would say likely the Federal Reserve Board might do another emergency cut of their interest rate to try to put some stability. But we saw what happened last week when they did the emergency cut. They actually scared the traders even mm-hmm. more. Uh, so I, I must say I'm absolutely confounded as to what to do to bring stability to the market other than greed. And at some point when stocks go down as much as they have, if you've been thinking about buying Amazon or wanting to buy Netflix or Google and you went, ooh, you know, at $1,000 a share, that's a little too much. Well, then now they're having a sale. It's $800. The only problem there is people are going to wait until they think it's hit the absolute bottom. And at this rate, maybe we can wait another couple of hours, get it even a better deal. So there is still the potential for some recovery here, but what about what about long term right now? People are skittish mm-hmm. about what's going on, and and like I say, it seems to be a perfect storm of of the of the coronavirus uh, fears, which are legitimate, I think. Although, and of course, what's going on with oil prices? I mean, when you get something like this. Uh, the, the, you know, this this is uncertainty personified. I mean, you're not going to get over this quickly, are we? No. You know, you need – so now what we need in the case of coronavirus, we need to hear some sustained good news. Now, China is becoming that good news if we'd only be open to that story. Yes, it's bad in Italy. Yes, it's bad in Iran. But, but China shows you that if you take these extreme measures and you do it for three, four weeks – 
you can get onto the other side. I, I think there was a feeling in the United States, this may be driving some what's going on in the New York Stock Exchange, that the United States wasn't doing enough. They weren't taking it seriously enough. You might remember there was a cruise ship. You can see where that's coming from. Yeah. Well, you might remember there was a cruise ship that was off, I think it was Oakland, California, and a, a helicopter flew over. They were qu- quarantining the cruise ship, and they dropped some test kits. Well, there's something like 2,000 people on the the boat, and they only dropped 100 test kits. Well, if you're going to test for coronavirus, you don't test the 100 most sick people. There are lots of people who don't have symptoms but might be coming down with it. You test everybody. Better to go too far than too little. And the feeling has been America has been very slow to take this very seriously. Whether Mr. Trump or Mr. Pence, because, you know, obviously he's put Mike Pence in charge of the coronavirus outbreak, whether they could say something today to calm the markets, I don't know. I think Canada has been doing a pretty good job of it so Mm -hmm. far. But, you know, nobody knows what's going to turn. On the case of oil, uh, you know, I think there'll be another emergency meeting of OPEC this week. Uh, they're going to try to get back together and say, see, I told you if we don't cut back. And you might even see a unilateral cutback. In other words, even if Putin doesn't play, Saudi Arabia, uh, Qatar, and other places like that might very well say, well, this is killing us, so we're going to cut anyway. Uh, Washington Post was reporting from one of their inside sources, they said, in the, Was- in the, uh, the White House, uh, that the reason why they're not distributing so many uh, test kits right now is because they don't want to know the truth. They want to know how many. No, I, I, I don't know. That sounds rather yeah. dastardly. But, uh, you know, Trump seems fixated on, on what's going on with the stock exchange right now. And, uh, you know, in his comments, he was at the Center for Disease Control on Friday, I guess it was. And they had, instead of asking about the spread of the disease, he was more worried about, uh, you know, th- what was going to happen on the stock exchange or the ratings that uh, he had for the rally the other night. Uh, so the guy's head is not into this right now. And that's that's not really the sort of thing you want from a president of the United States to give you that sense of confidence. No, I, I, absolutely. And whether he can whether he can change that tune or, again, if he's going to delegate it to Mike Pence, okay, Mike, here's your chance to step into the spotlight and really shine. If, if your president isn't saying the right things, here's a chance for the vice president. Who, who I'm assuming also has his eye on the presidency one day. This could, be, this could be his chance to shine and come forward. But we need that kind of leadership. And again, it, it, even if the United States isn't giving it, let's have other world leaders step up. If France steps up, if Germany steps up, if England steps up, even if the United States doesn't, that will go some way to trying to calm all of this. We've got a couple of minutes left here. Let's talk about the impact right here in this country. Obviously, this is bad news for Alberta and Saskatchewan. Yep. And, and uh, I mean, Jason Kenney, it was easy to point fingers at Ottawa and say, this is all your fault. I mean, there's a lot of other factors involved simply instead of federal government uh, policy decisions. This is out of the hands of, of the federal government. It's out of the hands of the premier. Uh, but it could have a, a long-lasting effect on an industry that's already crippled. Well, it's, it's a global thing that's causing it, and you're absolutely right. So what do I expect this week from Justin Trudeau? On the coronavirus, again, I think they're doing a good job, and he'll continue that. But I think you'll see, probably much like we saw when the steel tariffs came in, emergency cash to that industry to help it float through. You remember it was tr- retraining dollars and uh, uh, infrastructure dollars. I can't quite remember the exact number, but I think it was around $250 million for the steel industry when they were facing their challenges. I would not be the least bit surprised to see the federal government do the same thing for the oil and gas industry to say, okay, we realize you're, we've got to bridge you through these difficult times. We think you'll get onto the right side of it. 
And it might be six months, it might be a year, but in that meantime, what can we do? Now, again, lots of your listeners are going to say, oh, no, not that. We don't want the federal government um, meddling in the private sector. Uh, We don't want it bonusing certain kinds of businesses. But this is such a strategically important business to Canada, I don't think the federal government has much choice. Well, and every government says that, don't they? That they don't think we should be doing that right up until the time that they do it? (laughs) And I mean, you know, one of the strongest advocates for, you know, getting rid of what they called corporate welfare was Stephen Harper. Yet he was the guy standing beside Dalton McGinney back in 2008 saying, here's our deal. For GM and for Chrysler. And and so this is the fortunate... Because they looked at the other side of the ledger and say, that's the alternative, Mr. Prime Minister. What do you want to do? Yeah, do you want massive unemployment? Do you want the the de-investing in different places? And so you've you've got to do something. And again, oil and gas projects, they typically have to take a 25, 30-year view. I don't think what we're seeing now is going to be a permanent state for oil uh, in the next five years. But for the moment, for the moment, for whatever political reasons and otherwise, it's a big issue. And so I think the the federal government is going to have to step in. Um, uh, Finance Minister Morneau has not issued a date for his budget. It should happen between now and April 1st. So we've got roughly a three-week window. Last week, he was speaking to the Canadian Club in Toronto, and he said, you want to believe I'm going to be including in my budget some measures around coronavirus. Uh, I would not be the least bit surprised to see them talk about then oil and gas as being another key part of that budget. How long before correction happens? Let's specifically talk about oil here. Well, uh, let me let me do two things there, Bill. The word correction typically we use in terms of the market, and that happens when it falls by 10%. We have now passed that, yeah. and the question we're now is, are we entering a bear market? A bear market happens when the market falls 20%. We're not quite <laughs> quite there, but we are knocking on the door. We're down about 18 at this point, so we're knocking on the door of a bear market. In terms of oil, uh, the correction being when do we start to see it go back up, I, you know, I don't see anything happening for the next day or two. It's truly in a free fall at this point. We need to hear from some of the other players in all this. So if you're expecting the stock markets or the the oil things to change dramatically today, it's just not going to happen. If oil becomes a little more stable, does that cure the, uh, the stock market ills as well? No, it just buys you time. The stock market is on, on just walking on eggshells. Any bit of bad news today seems to get magnified. So even if you don't hear anything more about coronavirus, even if you don't hear anything more about oil, next thing you know, I don't know, uh, Amazon says their numbers are going to be off, or uh, Google says their numbers are going to be off, or Apple says their numbers are going to be off. That's enough to put another shockwave through the market. They, they just don't know how to handle the bad news at this point, and one bit of bad news gets magnified when it does happen. Grim Reaper is hanging over Wall Street right now. Yes. Uh, We'll keep an eye on it. Marvin, thanks as always. Great to see you again. Glad to be here. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. On the political scene, uh, the Ontario Liberals held their convention uh, in Mississauga, uh, just out by the airport over the weekend. And as expected, Stephen Del Duca, the uh, former cabinet minister in the Wynn government, was selected as the leader for the Ontario Liberal Party. Uh, To suggest that Mr. Del Duca has some challenges ahead of him would be a massive understatement. Uh, but is it an impossible task? We bring Christo Avalos into the conversation, political expert and YouTube commentator, formerly with the University of Toronto and with Queen's University. Uh, Christo, thanks for the time. I uh, appreciate you joining us today. Thanks for having me. Not, uh, not much of a surprise that Del Duca won this thing, given the field that was out there. Uh, this is, as one person described, the job that not too many people want right now. Uh, it's, this is a daunting task to try to raise this, this phoenix from the ashes, isn't it? Yeah, certainly. I mean, some people have made allusions to the you know, the Liberals' federal recovery, you know, they had the really disastrous 2011 election, and but they won a majority in 2015. But there's some big differences. I mean, Justin Trudeau, 
until very recently, until just before the last election, was very popular with the average Canadian and certainly was before he became prime minister. Del Duca's favorability ratings are already below zero. The only other leader I can think of that was like that was Doug Ford. And, you know, that's not a good sign for uh, for a liberal premier because the conservatives have a natural advantage in that, you know, accurate or not, they're perceived as the only right of center party, uh, whereas the uh, people on the, the perceived left of center have options. And so he's already unpopular. Uh, they don't have party status. Federal liberals never even came close to losing party status. And he doesn't really have the the wonderful narrative behind him that, say, a Justin Trudeau or even a Kathleen Wynne had about being, you know, the first uh, woman premier, about being the first openly gay premier, that, like, he doesn't have any of those narratives. And, and it's going to be really tricky. They're in severe amounts of debt, and they don't necessarily have a dedicated grassroots. Um, you know, the conservatives are raising a lot of money, but the NDP have more donors than the liberals, greens, and conservatives combined. So if it's the conservatives raising money from big donors or the NDP raising money from a lot of donors, the liberals are sort of squeezed out on both sides there. It's going to be very hard. I mean, they did have a couple by-election wins in very, very safe liberal ridings, but I don't know how much that indicates. Well, the reality here, and this is going to probably upset some of the policy wonks that are listening and say, oh, no, it's all about, you know, what you want to announce and what you're going to try to do. Uh, you got to be able to sell a politician these days. I mean, in the 21st century, it, it's right up there. I mean, there's got to be a persona. And you're right. I mean, Justin Trudeau, for better or for worse, uh, there was a story there. There was a personality there. You know, the the second generation of, of Pierre Trudeau. And, and, you know, he was a superstar within the Liberal Party anyway. Uh, and, and, of course, we all know about the Fords and their celebrity status. Uh, Del Duca, not a whole lot. Not, there's not much going on there. No, certainly. And, I mean, it's part of this might have to do with the way the Liberals pick their leader. I mean, most political parties now, federally and provincially, use the one-member, one-vote system. Now, some parties use uh, weights to ensure that certain ri- like that smaller ridings get more points. You know, the Conservatives here in Ontario use a point system. Um, but it's still fundamentally every conservative party member, every PC member gets a vote, uh, whether, you know, and you don't have to be an insider delegate. And it seems like, you know, the, the party did vote a, a majority, but not sufficiently to go to a one member, one vote system. And I think that likely leaves a lot of liberals perhaps disenchanted because maybe a lot of people felt that while Del Duca had the support of the party insiders, he may not have had the support of, of, the average liberal member, it's hard to tell sometimes, or the person who maybe isn't a party member, but would be a prospective, you know, liberal voter. Um, and, you know, it, the, the argument is going to be, you know, where does he take the party? And yeah, to a certain degree, it's about being able to sell a policy, but it's also about narrative. I mean, Justin Trudeau, you know, only became an MP after, you know, the, the Chrétien Martin era was done, you know, shortly after, but he never served uh, even as a backbencher in the in the you know the the, the scandal ridden you know liberal regime of the early 2000s and Del Duca was a key player in 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 this last government and was even part of the McGuinty years at least somewhat uh, and so he still has that for lack of a better term that 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 odor from that from that era that a lot of Ontarians aren't done with and you know Justin Trudeau as well had uh, you know the Liberals were out of power for almost a decade when they came back and and in that sense the the, the Liberals here in Ontario have only been out of power for four years and. You know, the most popular leader in this province is, isn't a liberal, but it's Andrew Horwath. And I think that that's uh, another barrier. And when you're talking about policy, I mean, a lot of people are expecting, and maybe, maybe we need to wait a little bit longer to see what he's going to do, but a lot of people are expecting that Del Duca 
going to take the liberals in a more center-right direction, which may help them flip some conservative voters, but may leave them weak in some of the areas that they're accustomed to winning in downtown Toronto, as a lot of those voters stick with the NDP. Because, you know, if it was one thing for Kathleen Wynne with her you know, eclectic policy on, on sex ed and on certain things. She was left of center, but then she was right of center on, you know, attacking uh, workers' rights and attacking um, the, you know, public services, like selling off hydro. But, you know, now there's an opportunity, at least, for the, for the NDP to basically say that Del Duca is even further to the right of Kathleen Wynne. I don't think that's where Ontarians want to go. I, I mean, some people are going to point to the last couple of polls that were done in the, in the greater Toronto area. Uh, that suggests that the Liberals are re- actually even slightly ahead of the PCs right now in in, in the public opinion polls, and the, and the NDP are a third. But I, I think you and I talked about that when that first one came out, Christo, and that's more of a reflection about the anger they feel towards Doug Ford than it is about, hey, we want the Liberals back. They, that was just a kick in the pants to these guys to say, we're not agreeing with anything you're doing, and those numbers have stayed pretty low right now. But uh, by the same token, I'm glad you used the analogy of, of, of Justin Trudeau uh, when he did become liberal leader, uh, and of course he was the third party there in that particular parliament, uh, Thomas Mulcair was the official opposition leader, uh, Trudeau spent an awful lot of time on the road, uh, going all over the place, doing public speaking engagements, and basically sold himself, uh, because people actually wanted to hear this guy. They thought, you know, what's, what's all this hype about this guy? Uh, Del Duca doesn't have that magnetism right now. It, I mean, it's it's going to be a, a much tougher road, a much taller hill for him to climb to try to gain any sense of popularity here in the province. Yeah, no, certainly, that's a great point. I mean, the, the, the argument most people would agree with was that Mulcair was one of the best opposition, um, you know, was the best uh, leaders of the opposition candidates seen, at least in a long time, in terms of his ability to hold the government to account. But that kept him in Parliament, you know, most of the time. Whereas Justin Trudeau said, I'm leader of the third party, uh, you know, I'm going to spend less time in Parliament and more time across the country. And whether you like that decision or not is... You know, what is he doing his job or is he just campaigning on the taxpayer dime? Whatever your point is, it, it, it worked. Del Duca might well try the same thing. But again, the trick is, is that back when Trudeau became liberal leader, the liberals still had, you know, 40 some MPs, the high 30s, low 40s. They had a robust caucus. I mean, it was smaller than the liberals have ever had, but it was a large caucus for a third party. Um, and so Justin Trudeau not being there wasn't necessarily a big deal. He had a lot of experience. Uh, MPs there to to back him up. Uh, the Liberal caucus is, is 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 tiny right now. It's 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 not a, it's not a it's not a caucus in an official party sense. And not having one of your people there on a semi permanent basis because they're campaigning really weakens your ability to represent your voters at the you know parliament. It's not one out of forty four. It's one out of seven or one out of eight. It's it's significant. And you still have the reality that Kathleen Wynne is going to at some point likely leave. And there's going to be a by-election there, and it could put the Liberals on defense. And that riding is not as safe as the, the two Ottawa ridings they just had. And they could face the prospect of a by-election loss. And, you know, the polling we've seen that has had the Liberals high up was almost always based on the assumption of a carte blanche leader. So everyone could sort of imagine a Liberal leader they like. Uh, you know, potential NDP Liberal swing voters could imagine a more center-left leader. Potential conservative Liberal swing voters could imagine a more center-right leader. When you mentioned the name, though, it didn't matter if it was Del Duca or Cato or Hunter or anyone, the liberal numbers fell. Because once you put a name there, you start giving people something to disagree with. You put Del Duca, center-left voters don't like it. You put, say, somebody else, center-right voters don't like it. And that was the reality. And when you look at those polls, 
what you see is, is it's a tie between Horwath and Ford, with the Liberals about six or seven points behind them. Um, better than where the Liberals were at the last election, to be sure, but, but nowhere near where they would want to be, and nowhere near this mythical idea that a Del Duca Liberal Party is currently poised to win the election. I don't think that's a reality. Talking to a couple over the weekend uh, after this was done, I guess, and, and that that was the same reaction. And these are people that uh, live here in the Hamilton area. They're on the north side of 50. Uh, and they identified, as they, in the conversation, identified themselves as, yeah, we're, we're liberal supporters. We've usually voted liberal. They didn't know who Steve Del Duca was. Had no idea. So, I mean, uh, maybe job one at Christos, he's going to have to sell himself to the party before he starts selling himself to the greater public. Yeah, and I mean, this could be a disadvantage of their system. Um you know, the, the Del Duca played the game really well. I mean, the reason he won here is that, you know, he organized and his team organized how to win delegates, how to win riding association delegates and get enough people there. And he was able to win on the first ballot. And even if he came up short on the first ballot, he almost certainly would have won on the second. You know, he, he had a clear victory in, in that um, convention. And, you know, a first, a first ballot victory in a six-person race is, is quite an accomplishment. Um, but that doesn't mean that you need to actually reach voters. I mean, even in a small party election, you know, even, you know, the, you know, Jagmeet Singh had to travel all across the country and meet people and sign up members and get his people to sign up members. And that builds more of a knowledge base, even if it's not as much as you need, among actual potential voters. And I think that's going to be an issue for Del Duca. And again, he's already minus nine, minus 10 in favorability. Now, maybe the, the upside is people don't really know him. He has an opportunity to introduce himself. He's not, he's not as sealed in the public mind as, say, Doug Ford was the second he became Ontario PC leader. But, um, you know, he means he could be more unpopular. Right? Like, that's the thing. He could be, his unpopularity could just now be emergent. I mean, we now know the story about how he tried to uh, get massage certain regulations to protect his pool, he does have the Kathleen Wynn stench. You know, it's it's not a he's not necessarily in a good position with the 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 you know the hundreds of thousands of liberal voters basically who you know didn't vote liberal last time and they voted NDP and I don't know if Del Duke is going to be able to get them back. Well, or they didn't vote at all those, or, those or disenchanted liberals. That as well, yes, yeah, certainly. And you you've got to have somebody who's going to have that that ability to, to compel them to get back into the fold here. And I'm not not sure. Sure, I mean you know we can talk about Mr. Del Duca's shortcomings, but the the reality here is when you look at the field. Uh, and the people that did throw their hat in the ring, there, there weren't too many options here. I mean, there was no superstar, no no shining light, and especially no young up-and-comer uh, that could attract somebody like that. So Mr. Del Duke is going to be the guy. We should mention, by the way, uh, just on a process situation, uh, he's not going to go for by-election right now, he says, uh, which gives him that opportunity to travel around and, and go on a, a listening tour, I guess, whatever they want to call it. But even if he is there, I mean, the member of the third party in, in, in the parliamentary system gets very little time in question period, don't they? Well, certainly. Well, that, but, but especially, again, the liberals are not a party. Yeah. This, this is not the, the you know, Jagmeet Singh uh, uh, now and Justin, well, is a fourth party technically with the, the Bloc, but the Bloc Québécois now and, and Justin Trudeau in 2015 and the NDP historically here in Ontario have usually been a party. You know, Andrea Horlath when she would have about 20 seats. You still get, you know, your regular allocated time. It's not as much as the opposition bench as the, the leading opposition party, but you get your time. When you're not an official party, you get far less time. You get far less allocations. You get less resources as a result from, from the public. You get less, you know, allocated staff and things like that. It's, it's really a big deal to not have party status. And I think we, 
we often think, well, it's just Parliament. The voters don't really watch, you know, Queen's Park. No one watches the Queen's Park TV channel. People will start paying attention in early 2022 as we approach the next election. That's true to some extent, but it really inhibits your ability to do a lot of that work. And, yeah, thank you for reminding me, Del Duca currently doesn't hold a seat. And so the whole debate will be much like with Del Duca Ching. Was it, is it good to wait? Um, is it good to maybe run for a by-election, but maybe not right now, maybe run maybe a year before the election? Um, is he going to ask one of his MPPs to step aside? Maybe will he consider running for Kathleen Wynne's seat? Like, she's been indicating that she wants to leave. Um, is this her opportunity to, to step aside and give the leader a chance? Maybe she can campaign with him. I'm not sure what the, what the goal is, but, you know, him winning a seat, is, is, is not as guaranteed as, as maybe people would think because the liberals have had a real hard time. And where they are strong, you know, I don't know if that's Del Duca's areas, places like Francophone areas in, in Ottawa, but they've just had their by-elections there. I don't think you'll be seeing another. Well, he's, he's a GTA guy, there. isn't he, Christo? And, 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 you know, and, well, exactly, and, yeah. and frankly, and I, I don't have any bias, but you and I both know that in some other areas of the province, there is a stigma about, well, there's another politician from the GTA. It doesn't matter what political stripe it is. No, no, you're, you're right. You're right. Well, right now you have Andrew Horwath from Hamilton. You have, you know, we have Mike Slander from Guelph. And you have Doug Ford, who is from Toronto, but for... You know, he's always seemed to be able to sort of shake that because he's not from the, the city core. But if Del Duca is portrayed as, you know, a downtown Toronto elite, whether that's fair or not to Del Duca, I think that's going to be a major issue for him. And, you know, when you look at by-elections, it's like, well, what's coming up? You know, in, in the GTA core, in the, in the downtown core, it's pretty much all NDP. Um, and, and, and often by ma- wide margins in, in, in the 2018 election. Um, and all you, usually running on a center-left platform. And so if Del Duca needs to find a seat somewhere where he can relate to the voters and they're open to voting for somebody who's not really seen as being on the left of the Liberal Party. And so maybe some upper-middle income areas, maybe some places in suburbia, maybe that's where he needs to look. But again, it's who's, who's he going to ask to step aside? Is, or, you know, will he get lucky and maybe uh, a, a progressive conservative MP or MPP, sorry, in a in a marginal riding, will step aside for whatever reason. It'll give him an opportunity. We don't know, but you know, Jagmeet Singh was able to run in Burnaby because the some you know uh, uh, a former NDP MP stepped aside to run for mayor, and 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 it opened up a seat for him to run in, and he was able to do so successfully. Um, this opportunity might not present itself for Del Duca, and it's often awkward to ask one of your MPPs to to give up their own career for you. Uh, uh, to, to do that. Exactly. Christo, uh, we've got to cut it off. We're just about out of time here. We'll certainly watch uh, Mr. Del Duca's next few moves, and I know we'll talk about this again. Thanks again. Thanks for having me. is, of course, uh, political commentator. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.